0: So we are going to be continuing in our series of Magnificent Mustard Seeds, Jesus' Magnificent Mustard Seeds, where we are looking at six critical teachings of Jesus, very simple, small, tiny little mustard seeds of teachings, but that when you sow them into your life, when you don't wash over them, when you take heed of what they have to say, you take them on deep, you water them in your spirit, you meditate on them and allow them to grow and define your character in this world, they have remarkable consequences. They cause the life of God to flood out of you wherever you go. This is a series about the power of a transformed character by God and so far in it we have looked at how Jesus causes us to take situations where we are inclined to judge somebody else like conflict and use those to see us free from judgment in our hearts and use them as restorative situations. Remarkable. And then how he also causes us to be constant forgivers in times of hurt, to really make forgiveness just one of our highest values because of the depth of forgiveness that he has poured poured out on us. He He wants to shape our characters in those ways. And today, we're going to be moving on to a really key issue, actually, which is... Jesus on success, what does a successful life look at? What does he have to say about that? And some stuff about pie, apparently. If you get bored in talks ever, not to say what's going to happen today, uh, or inclined to doze off, I want you to to do a thing for me today to help you along. Just count the number of times that I say pie. Okay? Pie? Pie? Switched on. Brilliant. And this magnificent mustard seed that Jesus has to say on success, is found in Matthew 6, 19-24. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to it, I'm going to put it up on the board. The board, Yeah, that'll do. In a moment. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I want to start you off with um, a true story about me. And in December this year is when it started, and I started going through something in my heart, something very genuine and a bit raw still, actually. And I was wondering whether everything that I had given to my faith in Jesus Christ was worth it. Big big query, but very real. And my thoughts, as far as I can make sense of them, was like this. I saw some of the people who had money around me, great jobs, influence in the world, and their lives seemed meaning so meaningful and successful. And on top of it, I'd been with a load of people uh, on the course, the study course that I'd been doing who were beginning to excel in the world, exciting careers. They were execs of development organizations, building conglomerates. They earned more, they had more influence. They went on better holidays that I couldn't afford. And they seemed to have more free time than me. They were going to have far more luxurious retirements than I'm going to have. And I also thought about some of my non-Christian unibodies who had been starting to fly high in life. Some were engineers working on nuclear sub- submarines. Uh, others present docu- excellent documentaries on Channel 2. Like One of my, my best friends has been, been doing that from uni days. Human rights lawyers, CFOs of organisations. And, and I started to wonder as I looked at all of this in my heart of hearts whether I should change course, whether this church planting pursuit of Jesus, which had been the the pursuit probably of my, particularly of my last 10 years, uh, which had led me to sort of juggling part-time jobs, comparatively little influence, uh, smaller amounts of income, was worth it. My heart had gone a long way, I realised, in December of this year from when we started and moved here when I just spent so much time with Jesus and I knew all I wanted was his presence. And on further reflection, I think this is what was happening to me. As my eye had begun to look at all of these people around me, I'd started to judge the success of my life by what is considered a successful life in this age and in our society and our city. And I think in a nutshell, it can be judge like this. I think success equals the size of the pie, slice of pie that you have. I think that's how we judge success primarily. The bigger the slice of pie you get in this world, the more successful your time on earth is judged to have been. So we look up for help from successful people who have won the most pie, don't we? They've accumulated the most stuff. They've gained the most influence over others. They've got the most power. These are the sages and wise men of our age, aren't they? The ones we quote, try to copy and model. The Alex Ferguson, the Steve Jobs, the Alan Sugars of this world. Men who started with a small slice of pie and got more pie than anybody else. And people generally judge where they fit into society, where their place in society, and who they want to associate with by whether they have a similar amount of pie as them. We look up to those with more pie, and we pity and try to help those with less pie. Or we try and help them get more pie. How are you doing with the pie? 14 pies, pie pie. It's all about the pie, do you see it? Does that make sense to you? You know, I recently found out that my cousin who is getting a lot of pie through a successful, profitable business, had to fold his business, and since this he spiraled into a really low pra- place. Do you know why? Because he didn 't see himself as successful anymore. Not having pie can raw, like, change our moods can't it, it can affect our very um, sense of ourselves and how we are doing and in December like my cousin, only without the successful bit in the middle. What happened to me was I had started to become a bit down because my slice of the pie, by the pie chart standard, I was not that impressive or successful. And what's more, I was becoming a bit annoyed with myself because I'm supposed to be a church leader. Church leaders don't think like this, do they? Church leaders are, they're they're men who are always steadfastly focused on Jesus. They don't get sidetracked, do they, by the beautiful things in this world and wanting them? No, never. Chris and Chris don't do that. Chris don't do that. Like, there must have been something wrong with me. They don't wonder if it would be better just to relax about the whole living on a mission thing and just going for the pie. But you know, then I started looking at the Bible and I realized I was totally wrong about this. And that countless individuals who had sought to follow God, have struggled with the same concern that was growing in my heart, where the success just did equal more pie. And I want to show you one place that I think exemplifies this brilliantly. There's a psalm of a guy called Asaph, who was, at the time he wrote it, the leader of the worship of God over all Israel in David's time. Pretty impressive leader in terms of the faith in God. And he wrote this, in psalm 73 truly god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped for i was envious of the arrogant for what i saw the prosperity of the, when i saw the prosperity of the wicked for they had no pangs until death their bodies are fat and sleek they're not in trouble as others are they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overthrow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the, he- the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, "God, how God can I know? Is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I he- kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the days long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. And when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I don't, I don't know if you can see what's going on here in his heart, but this gifted leader is describing an incredible battle in his heart where his emotions have been torn in two. Where his eyes have got drawn by the success others have had, their wealth, by their external appearance, the accolade they got from others for having it, their freedom, their power to say and do whatever they want. And his soul had started to become embittered about it and his own life towards God. And he nearly began teaching Israel, it says at the end here, to seek after the same riches, and he almost lays down his faith and calling for these things. He almost changes path. This is a big issue. You see that for some of the key individuals in the Bible, and it's to this issue of whether a successful life is about the portion of pie you get in the battle, and the battle this causes in the hearts of minds of Christians that Jesus addresses in the magnificent mustard seed that we're looking at today. In fact, what Jesus does in the mustard seed of Matthew 6, 19-24, is he puts his definitive stamp on what a successful life looks like. And he essentially says two very simple but deeply challenging things about success. The first one is this. Don't use a pie chart. Under no circumstances should you use a pie chart to judge the success of your life. You should not consciously or unconsciously judge a successful life by how much you have of something, possessions, money, power, or influence. This measure of success is no success at all in God, your creator's eyes. And he drills this point home in three ways. Firstly, he says this. Pie doesn't last. In verse 19, do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steals. Simply points out to his listeners that pie doesn't last. Power, wealth, influence, possessions, money, all (coughs) earthly treasures fade. They corrode. And ultimately what he's saying is that if you pursue success based on the sum of earthly treasures that you have and judge whether you are ultimately a success, by this standard you're essentially saying this, that your life is more successful than somebody else's because you have got a bigger pile of rubbish than they do. What are saying to you? If you're just going in for all of these worldly things, if you're doing this, if you're, judging, if you're judging by all these worldly things, your level of success and whether your life has been a success, you're saying, well, firstly, that I'm, I'm trying to get a bigger pile of rubbish than the man next to me. And secondly, that I'm more successful than you because my pile of rubbish is bigger than yours. Do you see, what Jesus wants to do is point out the ridiculousness of that. That is utterly stupid. Success, based on a pie chart, is no success at all. Don't use a pie chart. Secondly, he goes on to say this. The pie actually buries your light. In verse 22 and 23, he says that pursuing this kind of success in your life actually stifles, puts a blanket over your light says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In shorthand, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did, Jesus is saying where your gaze is determines how bright your blaze is. It's clever, isn't it? I was pleased myself. <laughs> oh. Really serious point though. Where your gaze is determines how bright your blaze is. If your eye is looking and fixed on and captivated by money, wealth, accumulation of possessions, if that's what your goal is ultimately, no matter where you are in the pecking order of life, whether you're very successful driving flash cars, big houses, lots of money, or that you're frustrated by not having those things because you're not successful by this standard, you've got no money, no holidays, etc., no benefits, then what you are pursuing is this, and all you are displaying is this, it says. Darkness. It says there is no light on display in your life. Another way of saying this is that there is nothing truly good for others to see in your life. If this is what you are considering successful all you're really putting on display is that you've created more landfill than the person next to you or that you're living your life upset that you haven't got more junk you know this teaching has such powerful implications for us as believers who are, are start to do i start to do what mine did where we start to cover and desire more cover and desire more pie you know as i was preparing the talk i came across this guy His name's Skip Bunyan, and he was a Texan man who hoarded so much over his life that it slowly consumed him. He became grubby and dirty, stopped going out. And ultimately when he died, it took authorities the best part of a week to find his body, which was eventually found buried under all of the debris. Get loud like that. By all the stuff that he had hoarded in his house. They had to dig holes in the roof to get in and find him. And you know my a sad spiritual experience that started back in December was a bit like the internal version of this, as I began to long for what I did not have. I felt my passion to God being beginning to dry, actually. My excitement for meeting him, it was swapped for apathy, and my joy in him became downcast. My light began to flicker and dim as my gaze went elsewhere. You know, if you recognise apathy, a dimness in your passion, a lack of joy right now, it may be, like me, that you've got a gaze problem. You're seeing success wrongly and you're judging it wrongly. And that's burying the blaze in your life. Don't judge the life using a pie chart. finally, says this, and most importantly I think, most powerfully, if those haven't struck you yet. Most striking is that he says that this type of success, about this type of success is that the thing you seek to possess actually possesses you. He says this in 21 and 24. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In 24 no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know there's Nothing inherently evil about possessions, money, or status in the Bible. In fact, all of them create create amazing opportunities to shine through hospitality, through generosity, through poverty alleviation, through evangelism, through cultural transformation. And in God, people with these possessions do wonderful works, don't they? However... Jesus is so direct in verse 21 and 24 of this passage and he wants his people to be in no doubt that if we long for these things in our lives to the point that we use them as a measure of the success of our lives, they come with a clear health warning. What our hearts love or truly love is the true owner of our hearts. So if we love possessions, we are really possessed by them. If we love money, it, not God, masters us. You know, um, as a probation officer, one of the guys I met with, was, it was a shocking story actually, he was, a, he was quite a nice lad for all intents and purposes, but he had a love of trainers. I kid you not, absolutely loved trainers. He was from an estate in a background where trainers meant status. New trainers meant that you had money that the girls would look at you and it was deeply important to him. It's not an uncommon thing, but this had got a hold of his life so much that whenever he would scuff a pair of trainers he would get rid of the pair of trainers. And these were expensive trainers. These were £100 trainers' time. Do you know, we figured out, we figured out that one month he spent £1,600 on trainers. And if you know what I do, you know that that meant that he wasn't getting that money legally. I'm a probation officer outside of this. So he was going and burgling houses just to get trainers. But he didn't want to burgle houses, he wanted the trainers. The trainers had a grip of him. He loved them. He loved what it brought them. He found he could not get away from that. So what did he do? He went to get the money to get the trainers. The trainers owned him. What you love possesses you. In the Bible, the love of money is one of the most dangerous things. The Lord talks about it more than anything else. And the word used for money in this passage is actually mammon which is a personification of money. So it's, a, it's sort of a, making him out to be a person, an alternative God. And this was something that was commonly done in the ancient world to show how he, he like God, could rule you. It was like a, an alternative ruler. And the, the fruit of that was commonly seen as greed, as um, not being free to give away your money. Stinginess. And Jesus here says that if you choose to choose to love and treasure these things, as the world does, beware. Be very wary. You are choosing to give them control in your life and over your life. It's powerful, isn't it? I well, think about this. Do I want the pursuit of money, of power, of possession to control me? To be king of choices and moods in my life? To rule over my decisions? No, I don't think so. Don't make the pie chart the measure of success. <coughs> so do you see it? The first thing he says in this passage is don't make the pie the measure of success. If you do, you're just trying to get rubbish. It will darken anything truly good in you, and it will control you. It's stark, isn't it? It's stark. So if success is not the pursuit of pie, what what is it? Well we can come to the second thing here. I think Jesus is concerned with something far, far greater than pie. And I think that's wedding cake. Don't tell me that pie is better than wedding cake, I know it's better than wedding cake, it's just an analogy, all right? (laughs) Jesus says he has a fundamentally different, much higher bar of what true success is, and that essentially he judges the success of your life by one thing, and as I look at this passage, I can only come to one conclusion, that, oh no, sorry, I just did, that was actually a really impressive wedding cake I found, I was going to just take an aside. Like, have you seen this? Sorry, this is ridiculous, but she made a life-size wedding cake of herself. Yeah. Isn't that more, shocking, anyway. Back to the really serious, impactful point that I hope will bless and affect your life this morning. I, I can only define it ultimately like this, and it's going to seem a bit strange, but I'm going to explain why, why I've done this, and hopefully you'll agree with me by the end of the passage. Is it this? I think Jesus sees success as this. How good your marriage to God has been? How good has your marriage to God been? At the end of your days, he will, by only one measure, measure your life. How good was the quality of the unique, intimate, committed relationship that Jesus formed within you? How good has that been? Let me explain a bit further. How do I get to this conclusion? Jump back. Well, every time in this passage that Jesus warns us off looking uh, to success as being about the size of the pie we get, he's also like a husband... There's a flip side to it. It's like a husband wooing his wife who has gone astray back to him and God. And the things that are found in him, he wants you to see those things. Saying, don't concern yourself with pie. Don't make that what your life is about and what you aim for. Instead, know what you have in God and aim for that. And again, he brings us three key insights about success that leads us to this conclusion. Firstly, Success is about seeking eternal treasure in heaven, where neither moth. So, verse twenty says this: Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and when thieves do not break in and steal. You see, we find out that God wants something far more for us than something that fades and just rubbish. He's concerned that we pursue in our life has a lasting and unfading value. But what does he mean by treasure in heaven? A lot of um, preachers will go on from here to, to discuss what you do with your money, to say, um, you know, it's about treasures in heaven. Storing up treasures in heaven is about giving giving things away. It's about giving stuff out. I, there's other places in the Bible that talk about this. I really don't think that's what he is getting at here. Here it's much simpler. Here I think he's saying just simply, keep your focus, your excitement, your interest, your joy, your passion on the eternal one king of heaven, on his unfading beauty. Treasure him, treasure that which is in heaven, God. Now, one of the cornerstones of Christianity is that the greatest good you could ever know is God. Nothing in, on he- in heaven and on earth is as joyful, as pleasing, as fulfilling, as exciting as him, Knowing God, his presence, his purpose for your life, his care, is the greatest prize that you can pursue in life. And God loves you so much that he does not want you to settle for second best, something that fades. He wants the best himself. That's what it means when we hear in the Bible that God is jealous for you. His unfading goodness. Nothing else could be considered a success for him. You know, this is the thing the parable of the, the pearl of great price brings out, which tells us about a merchant who had everything and went out seeking fine pearls. And when he found this certain pearl, everything else paled in significance. He sold everything else because he had found the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of the person of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing compares to it. You know, so much of a confused idea of success in our lives and looking at the world for what a successful life comes from this comes from forgetting to keep enjoying God the most, from treasuring Him. And for me in December, this was my core problem. I'd become a bit like a husband who had forgotten to keep treasuring his wife with God. My heart started to drift because where previously I'd been spending lots of time with Him, just enjoying Him. I started looking elsewhere for my treasure. At lesser pearls. So he says, don't do this. Keep your heart treasuring him the most. It's not pie that fades that is true success. It's remembering the relationship with God and keeping on the eternal thing, him. Secondly, he says this. Success is gazing at the light giver. Rather than gazing at the things that bring darkness, spend your life gazing at the light giver. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Do you know, there are times in my marriage with Becky when we would be out doing something, like we'd be at a dinner with friends or we'd be just out playing with the kids and my eye will catch her. And instead of just looking away and cracking on, like something about her will will captivate me afresh. And I will catch her just um, laughing, or I will catch her um, just being so gentle and wonderful with the children. And something happens as I gaze at her in me, where my heart just jumps. Like, I just, I rejoice in the woman that God has given me. And, um, and it just, it restores me. Something comes out of me. Joy comes out of me. Thankfulness, gratitude, wonder comes out of me. Do you know that, husbands? And sometimes I tell Becky that I've been watching her and she gets a little bit freaked out. <laughs> I quite enjoy that as well. <laughs> it's just been, been the great story of m- my Christianity. That the same thing has happened to me when I stopped to take time and gaze at God. You know, the same thing happened to me as Augie led us into the presence of God this morning. When I catch a glimpse of him in worship, in his word, when I I capture again something of his sacrifice, suddenly his life wells out of me, his joy. It's like someone puts on the light switch inside of me. Prophecy starts to flow. Passion, giddiness, and joy in him. Sometimes I even dance. Quite a lot I dance, actually. And I have a desire to give all that I have to him. And to love like he loved me. Is this just me? No. I think some of you know this, but also in the Bible. Do you remember my ancient troubled friend Asaph? When we left him, he was wearied by his plight compared to those he gazed at. But if you read on in the psalm, it says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, Lord, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How are they destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes? O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put to an end everyone who is unfaithful for you, but for me it is good to be near the God, I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Do you see what happened again here? Asaph changes his gaze away from the success and things there are in the world. His eye becomes healthy again, and he catches in God's sanctuary, the place where he dwells, just a glimpse of God. And this whole psalm pivots in that moment his heart suddenly starts to play a different tune. He sees clearly that wealth and things fade, that they're all rubbish. They're like chasing the wind and he is captivated once more by the pearl and all of a sudden he overflows with light, with joy, abundance and the truths of God. So Jesus says here that success, just as success is spending your life treasuring God, is keeping your eyes gazing on him. Keeping your eyes catching a glimpse of him that causes that life to overflow out of you and the light to flow out of you. Just like it is when I see my wife across the room. Finally, and again I think, oops, apologize for that. And I think most strikingly, success is being devoted to one alone. Rather than become devoted to money and other things to give your heart to them, success is devotion to one person, allowing him alone to be the Lord of your life. 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. He calls us not to pursue more pie with all our might, but hate and despise anything. Strong words. Hate and despise anything that rules our lives other than God. Success is seeking to possess God alone so that he alone possesses your life. He doesn't want to be us be like us to be like players, you know. We've got our wives over here who are great, but we've always got one eye looking at the world. He wants us to be there's there's a guy, CJ Mahaney, who writes that he makes his wife his constant study throughout the entirety of his life. He is only interested in studying and finding out about her. He wants you to know the depth of the one relationship, not be looking round. For other things that he alone, in his eternal beauty and his life giving glory, all wise, knowing and good, deeply caring, love, powerful, sacrificially majestic in might, that he is the one that you take your only need from in life, because he is the because he is the only one that captivates your heart, the one relationship. This is how I get to this, actually. You know, one creative way about thinking about your moment of salvation, or the moment of salvation, is that it's like a wedding day. Because on the day you come to faith in the work of Jesus Christ and give yourself to him willingly, it's the same day that Jesus willingly and unconditionally gives all that he has to you. And on this day, you married way out of your league. Even more so than Chris did with Tor. He brought way more to the table than you did. Sorry, but truth hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Good on. I thought I blessed you, Tor, didn't I then? Oh, I bent you earlier on. Okay. Important point. Important point. His death that forgives, he brought. His life that was perfect that he gives to you. His victory over death in your life. Bringing you you into his earthly family. But most of all, he gave you a completely restored and unbreakable relationship with God through him. To know all of the joy and treasure there was to be known in a restored relationship with the Father. What did you bring? Sin and death. But he completely gives all of these things for you, unbreakably. Covenant them to you for life. And what Jesus is saying here is that no longer should you define success of your life by any other measure by how, than how much you live in the good of the marriage and all that it brings. Are you treasuring it? Are you gazing at it? Are you devoted to it? He's not concerned about pie. He's concerned about the relationship that he has wrought with you and that you are enjoying it in all its fullness. Is that how you have ever defined success in your life? Are you ultimately driven towards and um, pursuing? the richest relationship you can possibly have with God by the time you die? Or are you pursuing, if you're really examining it, a bigger pile of rubbish than the man next to you or woman next to you? Has the depth of what Jesus is saying in this mustard seed caught you and started to be the defining characteristic of your life? Why is it so important to allow it to Settle in. I think it's probably this. I think you can see success, the role it plays in our life, our view of success. is like the destination on a road map. Everything else, all other choices, lead to what you consider success. So if success is pie-based, then the fruit of our lives, the choices of our lives will all be in the pursuit of pie. And you'll get the fruit of this. You will get bigger houses, better retirements, tastier pies. But in the end, it will all simply rust. But if we allow the radically alternative vision of success that Jesus gives us to grow in our lives, and the fruit of our lives may or may not be more pie, but it will be like that of Jesus who showed the world true success in his short, penniless life. Who in his deep love and relationship with God saw only to do the will of his Father and overflowed with the joy and life of his eternal relationship with God. Choosing to seek God in every situation. Making God his choice at every juncture. Even the hard ones choosing to trust God around every blind corner, even death. And he took heaven's riches wherever he went, didn't he? Healing, freedom, life abundant. What is the ultimate goal of your life? It's one of the most important choices that you can make. Do you want pie or do you want wedding cake? close. This morning I think God's got one aim, which is this. Do you know, recently preparing talks has been a relatively quick and fun task for me. I've I've been really enjoying that it's less arduous than when I first began preaching. But not with this one. This one I found a deeply challenging task to put together. And I I think it's because it was ministering to my heart so deeply, to my wavering heart. It was challenging at every junction my attraction to pie and stuff, calling me back to the deep relationship that He started in me on the cross, to the depth of joy that I've only ever found in Him, and that abundance of life that only comes out when I glimpse Him. And to be honest, it's been a a painful talk for me to prepare. And I realized that the destinations on my roadmap for around half a year have become divided and that this mustard seed was not well-rooted in my life, just to be honest with you. But literally, Friday night, as I was finishing up preparing this for you, something jumped out from Asaph's psalm again for me. And it was this, that God was always waiting for Asaph in his sanctuary, arms wide open and ready for Asaph. He never changed, he never moved. It was Asaph who had gone, that's right. He was waiting there to give back his high perspective of success to him again, to reorientate him, to bring him back on track, to have him enthroned again in Asaph's heart. Asaph may have got captivated by the world's success, but nothing changed in God's heart towards Asaph. He was just waiting for Asaph to look at him, to come to him. He never went anywhere. And he was instantly willing to reveal his goodness once more and restore him. So Asaph writes, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Such grace of God. Such grace of God flooded into me in this moment. I saw this anew. I felt him just lift me gently from the muck and the mire and seat me in heavenly places with him and restore me to that position of how I view success. And it's about the depth of my relationship with him. Listen, wherever you're at, I think, God either wants to set you off on a new pathway of viewing what success is, a new life orientation today, and that happens through um, trusting in Jesus Christ for the first time, where he brings you into this relationship where you know and can know the fullness of the grace and goodness of God through trusting in his son or he wants to reorientate you he wants to do what he did for Asaph he wants to give you just a moment in the sanctuary this morning just to lay down if you've been pursuing a life of rubbish you recognise some of that that I had in my heart if that's been, if that's been gripping you and he wants to reorientate you to just that pursuit of a life with him afresh